Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Hans Vandale. Uh, May 18th, 2022, we're at Dusky Goose Winery in Carlton. Uh, thank you so much, Hans, for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, first question to get us rolling is why wine? I, uh, I sort of fell into wine. I um, grew up in a household that, you know, was passionate about food and drink, but, um, you know, the whole wine industry certainly wasn't on our radar. It was just part of everyday life. Um, growing up, I always, I, you know, obviously I wasn't drinking wine, but I loved food. And at an early age, I, um, you know, decided, you know, this was sort of the age of um, celebrity chefs and Food Network gaining popularity. So I was seeing that sort of thing and thinking, oh, that seems cool. My uh, mom and stepmom encouraged me to play around with them in the kitchen. And so probably by about 12 or so, I decided, um, you know, I would like to be a chef. That quickly fizzled. But during those years, I would uh, ask to go out for dinner for birthdays rather than having a birthday party, that sort of thing. Um, I also had parents that, you know, recognized that uh, passion and um, were happy to fuel it. So when I would get good grades or something like that, they would reward me with a, a dinner uh, out, that sort of thing. So I grew up in Santa Cruz, uh, California, or just south of there, a little town named Aptos. And um, so we were with, you know, pretty close to San Francisco. So on special occasions, we could go to San Francisco and have a fancy meal, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, so anyway, I, I was into food real early. Um, like I said, that fizzled. I got into college and uh, went to UC San Diego. Um, was really focused on athletics at the time. I did track and field um, in, at UC San Diego for the first three years. And then um, I studied biology. And you know, your parents tell you things like, go to school, study the thing that interests you, which is what I did, but I didn't really have a career path in mind, so got a degree in biology, but didn't really know where to go with it. Um, got out of school and um, traveled in South America with a good friend of mine, came back broke, um, did a brief job for my stepfather um, working construction in Washington, and then came back from that lived at home for a little while, was ready to get out of the house, and a buddy of mine um, convinced me to move to Napa. Um, a good friend of his from childhood had just graduated from Cal Poly as a viticulture major, so he was working for St. Supri at the time, and um, got us both to move out there. Uh, I worked harvest at Cake Bread. My good friend worked in the tasting room at Nickel and Nickel. Um, my friend that was at Nickel and Nickel got tired of the valley real quick and ended up getting out of there uh, by the end of the year, I think. Um, but I loved it, and so I stuck around at Cake Bread um, after harvest. They gave me a full-time position, and that was sort of uh, that was sort of it. I um, this was 2006. Uh, I was having a great time working there learning a lot, you know, just kind of enjoying the lifestyle, food, wine, beautiful setting, that sort of thing. And even then, I don't know that I, if you had asked me, I would have said that this was going to be my career path, but I was, it was fun for the time being. Um, 2008, I um, got a leave of absence to go to New Zealand, um, did a harvest in Marlboro, which was awesome. But even then, it was really kind of an excuse to travel. I wasn't like trying to pick the brains of the winemakers and stuff. I, I was certainly absorbing things. You know, I had been in the industry long enough to, you know, know my way around the cellar and identify the, what they were doing different from what I had experienced. But 
I still sort of didn't have my eyes open as far as winemaking was concerned. Um, but came back from that harvest and um, that's when the economic downturn happened and I had a lot of family members that were losing jobs and I decided, well, I've got a job and I'm gonna stick this out. Um, this is a cool industry, maybe I get serious about it. And so that's sort of when it became a career path. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the kind of the first harvest that your your friend did not enjoy yeah. his time, and you did. What what did you enjoy? What was exciting to you about being in the industry? In the industry at that point, before it was a career thing, yeah. what did you enjoy about it? I liked working with my hands. You know, getting dirty. The whole the physical aspect. I was at Cake Bread, which is a a big operation. Um, they do an amazing job of maintaining quality at a scale that is really hard to accomplish. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I like the lifestyle a lot. Just, I could, I could see being in Napa Valley that everyone there was happy. Um, they were eating good, they were drinking good, they were working, you know, physically and staying fit, enjoying being in the outdoors. Um, yeah, and you know, I had a biology degree, so the kind of the marriage of science and art was appealing to me. Um, yeah. So once you came back and it became, you started to kind of focus on it more, uh, at that point, what were you sort of thinking about, like long-term, okay, this is gonna be a career, what, what, do you, what did you wanna do? What was the kind of initial, the eventual goal? To become a winemaker, yeah. So not so much, I didn't have grand plans of owning a brand or being the GM of a brand, but just being in charge of making wine. That was it. So um, I stayed at Cake Bread and worked my way up through the ranks as far as I could go there, and then started you know, looking for other opportunities where um, smaller operations where I could be more involved with all aspects of winemaking and you know, I hadn't spent any time in the, in the lab, so I kind of wanted to demystify that side of winemaking. Um, and I thought that, you know, moving somewhere smaller would, you know, do that for me. So 2011, in January of 2011, I moved to Longmeadow Ranch Winery, which is a small producer in St. Helena that does um, Bordeaux varieties, Sauvignon Blanc, uh, a little bit of Petite Syrah, a little bit of Sangiovese. And um, yeah, we did about 100 tons of red. I was in charge of the red uh, program, or not in charge, I was the, I was the cellar master, but um, we didn't have a full-time winemaker. We had a consulting winemaker, so I dealt with our consulting wi winemaker, and um, we ultimately hired another full-time person to um, mined the Sauvignon Blanc program, which got quite large. Um, and because that was such a, a quick turnaround product, you know, we would harvest in August and bottle in January. The rest of the year, they were helping me out with the red wines in the cellar. So, you know, they had dual responsibility of both, um, yeah, doing cellar work with me, but also making the Sauvignon Blanc. What was that work like for you, being kind of not necessarily in charge, but at least directing a program like that? It was great. Um, it was a very labor-intensive um, style of winemaking. We uh, racked frequently. All the wine was on stillage, so it was a lot of you know schlepping barrels around. Um, yeah, just so different from my life now where, you know, we barrel down Pinot and then we don't do anything with it other than top until it's time to bottle. Um, but it was great. I learned a lot. The, the consulting winemaker there um, was named Ashley Heisey and she was a really smart lady. Taught me a lot about, you know, just quality winemaking and really getting into the minutia. Hmm. Um, which was great, that was you know, what I wanted. Um, while I was working for them, I also lived on the property. Um, so you know, we were up in the hills and there were times when I didn't leave the property for weeks on end. Um, so I was, I was really in it, which was, which was great. 
as you were focusing on it at that at that level, you're, it's beyond, at that point, it's beyond just kind of like, I enjoy food, I enjoy wine, I enjoy travel. At that point, you actually have to enjoy what you're doing day in and day out. So at that point, with that kind of labor intensive, it was still enjoyable to you. It was still something you enjoyed working on. What, what was it about it? Was it still just the, the kind of physical aspect, or was there more to it at that point? Well, at that point, it was so different from what I had experienced at Cake Bread that, you know, it was, it was like a learning opportunity. Um, we were tracking things that were being tracked at Cake Bread, but I wasn't tracking, you know? The, it was the things that I was paying attention to, like, you know, the NTU um, during wine movements and dissolved oxygen and um, just microbial mm -hmm. stability stuff that, you know, the enologist and the assistant winemakers were paying attention to at Cake Bread, but, you know, as a as a cellar worker, I was just focused on moving wine from A to B as efficiently and, you know, while maintaining quality mm -hmm. as I could. Mm -hmm. Finally, putting the biology work to to a biology background to good work. Yeah, and it only took me seven years to <laughs> put that to work. Fortunately, I remember a little bit of it. So, tell me about what what happened next at that point. So, I. Um, I, after Longmeadow, I moved to Salvestrian Winery, which is a small family-run place in St. Helena as well. Um, really interesting spot. Um, the family bought their property in the early 1900s and started out as farmers and um, didn't start actually making wine until the mid-90s when the third generation got involved. Um, they, uh, my boss was a gentleman named Rich Salvestrin, and he was a, a farmer to begin with, went to Fresno State, um, saw that all of his neighbors were making fortunes, making Napa Cabernet, and he's like, well shit, my family owns a vineyard on, in the St. Helena Benchland, why don't I get in on this? So. He started making wine initially at Rombauer, uh, kind of custom crush, and then they built themselves a little winery and tasting room on the property. And um, it was just great, They're very, you know, salt of the earth people, not um, the tech millionaires moving in and buying into the lifestyle. You know, they were there and living that lifestyle for generations. And um, yeah, just a great place to be. I, it also afforded me the opportunity to get involved in the vineyard more than I had in the past, um, which mostly meant just driving a tractor, but that was awesome. You know, you, there's no better way to get intimately acquainted with a vineyard than to tediously drive a slow-moving vehicle up and down every row and seeing how the soil changes as you go from, you know, one end of the road to the mm -hmm. other and that sort of thing. So that was really great for me. And he, you know, being a more of a farmer, he had a lot of insights into farming that um, I just wasn't privy to mm -hmm. up to that point. Um, and that was great. I, I loved working there. I'd probably still be working there um, had uh, my wife and I decided not to move up to Oregon. Um, so what prompted that? So I had been in... Um, Napa for 10 years. Uh, I'd been with my wife for uh, about five of those years. And she is an Oregon native. She grew up on the coast here. And she's also in winemaking. She's the winemaker at Penarash. And um, she was making wine for the Hess Collection, which was a great job. You know, no complaints about the work. But um, we were ready to get out of Napa. Uh, cost of living was crazy there. We were living in St. Helena and realized that we would never be able to afford a home that interested us um, without tacking on an hour plus commute to our jobs every day. So we started uh, looking for work elsewhere. Um, I, having grown up in California and close to Santa Cruz, I was lobbying hard for the Santa Cruz Mountains. Um, she was lobbying for Oregon. <laughs> and um, to her credit, we, we focused more on California to begin with, but quickly realized that the opportunities there were pretty far and few between. Um, you know, the industry is even smaller there than it is here. 
Um, you know, everyone thinks California, the industries are huge, is huge, and it is, but Santa Cruz Mountains is a big AVA, and the wineries aren't like super concentrated, so there's not like wine country, per mm -hmm. se. Um, so yeah, we, we did a little bit of exploration there, um, but my wife had sort of always kind of kept an ear to the ground as far as opportunities in Oregon. Um, she had worked Harvest in 2010 at Bethel Heights, and um, ever since um, she left that internship, she was uh, in contact with Ben Castile, saying, if you ever have a anologist or assistant winemaker position, um, please let me know, because I'll move back for that. And the job never materialized, but um, he was a good advocate for her mm -hmm. when he did hear about jobs. And in 2016, um, Lynn Penarash approached Ben um, as she was looking for a successor as winemaker at Penarash, and he said, uh, there's this gal down in California who has been trying to get back up here, highly recommend her. So uh, my wife Kate got interviewed and eventually took the position with Penarash in 2016. She, um, she moved up in May and I stayed behind for a little while and we, um, yeah, I stayed behind so that I could help the Salvestrins find a, a replacement for myself and it also, I didn't have a job lined up so it gave me time to try to find something up here for myself, um, which I, I thankfully did. Um, I interviewed a few places up here but ultimately uh, went to work for Andrew Rich at the Carlton Winemaker Studio. Started with him in, gosh, I don't remember, June or July of 2016. And um, worked for him for five years um, at the Carlton Winemaker Studio, which is great. Well, we're gonna get back to that in a second. But before that, I'm curious, before moving here, what was your impression of Oregon wine, or the Oregon wine industry? What did you know about it at that point? That's a great question. So I, um, while living in Napa, my wife and I were finding that we were kind of bored with um, Napa wine. So we were finding ourselves, you know, when we were going out tasting, trying to get to Sonoma and, you know, something other than Cab in Merlot. Um, so we were definitely keen on Pinot and Chardonnay. Um, obviously I knew Oregon did those things and when we would travel to visit her family, um, we would stop through the valley, visit a handful of places. Um, my impression of it was not the most positive. I, you know, having come from Napa where everything's all fancy and um, lots of capital behind everything. It seemed like pretty rustic to me. Um, but not, I, I thought the wines were great, and I, but I definitely gravitated more towards the, the warm vintages than the cool vintages just because of my California palette. Um, but yeah, I thought it was, uh, I thought it was very pretty um, once you got up into the hills, but the things that I love about it now didn't really appeal to me then, um, you know, driving into Dundee and thinking, oh, this is like the, you know, like the center of wine, Oregon wine country. This is, this is not St. Helena or Yountville, you know, like I'm used to. Um, this place has a ways to go. And that's now what I love about it, you know, that it's not the, uh, you know, the adult Disneyland that Napa has become. Um, but yeah, it also, it took me a while to train my palate to appreciate the, the less fruit forward wines that are produced here. That's really interesting. I'm, I'm curious about that because uh, you, like you said, you had been in, in kind of cab country for so long. Uh, so it was hard to appreciate the wines when you got here. How long did it take? How long does that kind of thing take? Well, yeah, so I mean, I, I, I'm remembering one trip specifically. Um, it was when the current releases in the valley were going from 12 to 13, 12 being a very ripe vintage and 13 being on the cooler end of the spectrum. And going 
to a bunch of tasting rooms and you know purchasing wines and I was always lobbying oh no we need to get these 12s and my and Kate was always saying no these 13s are way better um, but she like you know she liked them both I liked them both we just you know preferred mm -hmm. one more than the other um, and we ended up you know getting a bit of both um, but now I definitely see the merits of both you know I wouldn't say that I've completely lost my California palette. Um, I just have an Oregon palette in addition to my California <laughs> palette. Um, I like that. Yeah. Um, so tell me about uh, the work with Andrew Rich. Obviously, the winemaker studio is a very interesting place. Must mm -hmm. have been interesting. I'm assuming an interesting place to work. Definitely. Uh, so tell me about getting used to that and about getting used to, I guess, Oregon. Just the Oregon, the Oregon style of winemaking, Oregon style of everything. Sure. Yeah, it was a big transition. Um, going to work with Andrew. It was, it was great. I loved working with Andrew. He's a great guy, a great winemaker. Um, lots of experience in Oregon. You know, he started making wine in the mid-90s and um, he also sources fruit from Washington. So I got to, you know, continue to make those big reds, which was fun. Um, but like Salvestrin, I was, or not Salvestrin, cake bread, I was so low on the totem pole, I wasn't involved with blending or anything like that. Long Meadow Ranch, again, I really wasn't involved with blending. The, the consulting winemaker did all that sort of thing. Um, and then at Salvestrin, I did, but it was sort of up to, my, up to my discretion, like how involved the blending process was. And because I didn't have a ton of experience doing it, mm -hmm. I didn't really know you know, what could be done. So honestly, I feel like, you know, we left things on the table in those years where the wines could have been better if we had just put more work into blending. Like the wines were great, don't get me wrong, but I think that they could have been better if we had put in more work. It just wasn't something that was on my radar at the time. So I started with Andrew and the blending process was so involved. Um, yeah, it was just very involved. And I, I think that's what I learned you know, most from him. It was also, you know, I was making Pinot, so it was a completely different uh, beast from what I had been working with. Uh, but yeah, just the time and effort that we went into putting our blends together. He also, um, Andrew's an interesting case in Oregon where he doesn't do a lot of single vineyard bottlings. Most things are proprietary bottlings. So either a, a qualitative type tier mm -hmm. or um, we did Initially, when I started, it was qualitative tiers because his, uh, his bottlings were called um, Prelude, which was his entry-level wine, Verbatim, which was sort of middle tier, and then uh, Knife Edge, which was sort of his like reserve-type wine, which was um, designed to be more of an age-worthy mm -hmm. type bottling. So, yeah, we didn't have limitations as far as what could go into those bottlings, and he wasn't making a small a lot of wine, so we had a lot of things to pull from to put those things together. Mm -hmm. um, uh, he eventually did away with those bottlings and did a um, soil-type-based soil stuff. So it was um, volcanic soil bottling, marine sedimentary soil bottling, and then an AVA bottling from the Eole Amity Hills. Um, we did do a handful of um, single vineyard bottlings, but that was more towards the end of my time with him, and um, it was really just um, if a vineyard was really speaking to mm -hmm. him mm -hmm. in that vintage. Um, and then it was fun, I had never made, you know, we were getting Washington fruit, so we were getting Grenache, Syrah, and Moved. Um, I had never worked with Grenache or Moved before and Syrah just barely. So that was just a fun new um, adventure. And Washington fruit in general, mm -hmm. obviously completely different. We didn't get up there a whole lot. You know, it was, we'd get up there, we relied heavily on the growers to let us know when things were getting close and then we would go up there a couple of times for sampling before harvest. But um, yeah, they were just fun wines that I didn't have experience with. And really that's kind of what Andrew's known for around here is those big reds just because there's not a ton of people doing it. Um, and, and he does it great, don't get me wrong. Uh, but that's really what brought him to the area in the first place. He's like, he came from Bonnie Dune Vineyards in Santa Cruz and was in love with uh, Rhone varieties. Mm -hmm. Moved up here in the 90s and said, oh, I'm gonna make um, 
I'm gonna make Syrah, Northern Rhone Syrah, and I'm gonna make Chateauneuf uh, red blends. And then he got here and, he <laughs> and realized that there wasn't much of those varieties planted yet, even in Washington. So he he's like, okay, I guess I'll make Pinot. That's, what, uh, that's what's available to me. Um, Ultimately, he did get into some really great sites in Washington and get to work with the varieties that you know he was most passionate about. Um, and ironically, now he, uh, I think he's got a greater passion for Pinot than he does those wines. Um, so yeah, um, it's funny how that works. Yeah, <laughs> I'm curious about Pinot specifically, since you hadn't, you didn't really have a background working with it, despite being interested in it. What's different about it? What did you have to learn about working with it versus working with some of the more uh, robust reds? Sure. Um, so I definitely, I did have some experience at Cake Bread. We made. Uh, Pinot from Carneros and uh, Anderson Valley, and I always liked those wines. Um, the winemaking for those was not so dissimilar to what we do now, just kind of on a bigger scale. You know, our, we did we had five-ton fermenters with pneumatic punch-down devices, um, so it was, you know, a little bit more, you know, automated mm -hmm. or large-scale than what I do now. Um, and then in New Zealand, we made. Pinot Noir from, that was trucked in from central Otago mostly. Um, and that was even larger scale, you know, that was um, uh, like eight ton fermenters. And I really wasn't uh, make, involved with that much. Um, I was mostly working on Saint Blanc. And then, yeah, nothing at Longmeadow. They, they have since started a Chardonnay and Pinot program, but that was after my time. Um, so yeah, when my frame of reference was, yeah, you gotta be super delicate, you know, it's just a lighter lighter touch in general, and that was, that's true, but we would, sort of the, the thinking behind it was di kind of the opposite of what I think now. Um, we did punch downs, which uh, nowadays I think of as being more extractive than pump overs, and you know, no one punches down Cabernet. It's, it's all pump overs. Mm -hmm. um, so now, coming up here, um, I do do quite a bit of punch downs, but it's a combination of punch downs and pump overs, you know, just kind of, you know, depending on what the fermenter is asking for. Um, and then as far as, you know, the, uh, the big differences in farming and picking decisions and just, um, you know, Napa Cabernet is big and fruity and sappy and all those, those things, and we're trying to make a very different style of uh, wine here, you know, preserve freshness and um, not the, you know, kind of generic big red. You know, we want to express each site individually. So with all the places you'd, you'd worked, you obviously, you'd, you'd come across obviously a lot of different styles, a lot of different opinions, a lot of different uh, philosophies behind making wine. So I'm curious, did you, as you came to Oregon, did you kind of have your own, like, this is the way I make wine, or this is the, this is the philosophy I'm gonna use? And, and if so, how did it fit here? And, and if not, I'm curious, do, do you have one now? Yeah, so I, I definitely did not. You know, I had producers up here that I favored. Um, but I didn't have enough of a frame of reference to know, you know, what their winemaking practices were that would yield the outcome that mm -hmm. I was enjoying. So I got up here and, you know, before I started working with Andrew, I tasted his wines to, you know, make sure it was a product that I was going to be excited to, to make. And I, I was. Um, his wines are great. Um, but that was one of the the benefits of working at the studio. You know, so many different winemakers in there. Getting, I got to see a whole lot of different approaches and that really opened my eyes to how, you know, cellar practices mm -hmm. and, um, you know, vineyard practices can influence the mm -hmm. final product. Um, I would say to this day, you know, there are certainly, um, you know, wines that I prefer still, but, you know, I, I, I like all styles um, if they're executed well, and I'm happy to produce all styles. Um, I, I, get, I certainly have my preferences, and uh, Dusky Goose uh, was made by Lynn Penner-Ash for, or continues to be made by Lynn Penner-Ash um, 
for you know 20 plus years. This is our 20th anniversary this year, and so you know her wines are fantastic. They age well. They show well young. It's kind of the best of both worlds. So you know I was uh, happy to you know fall into her orbit when my wife moved up here. So I was I was tasting with them long before I started working for Dusky Goose, and you know trying to learn what I could. Um, but yeah, I mean my. My winemaking philosophy is certainly not set in stone. Um, there's, what, there's what I enjoy, and I'm sure that will evolve over time. As you become more familiar with um, sort of sites up here and, and styles of uh, different kind of uh, you know, terroirs and things like that up here, have you found yourself sort of gravitating toward, I want to work with fruit from here, I want to, you know, or, or is it still kind of, are you still in the kind of process of where it's like, like you say, I, I will do anything as long as I can execute it well? Um, yeah, I, so another nice thing with working with Andrew is he didn't own any vineyards, he sourced all his fruit, so we got fruit from all of the, uh, nesting ABAs in the Willamette Valley. So I got to, you know, dabble with everything. And, you know, while I, I worked with one site in the McMinnville ABA only, so I, I certainly wouldn't, you know, paint that entire ABA with, a, with the same brush as that one site, I have a, a general idea, and it's also come from tasting, you know, other producers' wines, that um, I currently favor uh, Eola Amity and Dundee Hills. Uh, Dundee Hills specifically, and I might be biased now that that's where our state vineyards are, uh, it's just kind of quintessential Oregon Pinot Noir to me. It, uh, it's elegant, it's pretty, it's red-fruited, it's got the spice and the earth that I think when people think of Oregon Pinot Noir, that's kind of what you know they're thinking of. Uh, Eola Amity is an exciting AVA too. Um, some really fantastic wines coming out of there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's very site specific. You know, even within the the AVAs, you know, there's certainly vineyards in Dundee and Eola Amity that I don't love. So. So you mentioned kind of being in, in Lynn's orbit, of course. Um, tell me, before Dusky Goose became part of, 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 of your life, uh, what, were you, what did you kind of learn from her? What, 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 did you, what was your impression of, of her and the wine she made, and, and what was it about this opportunity that was exciting for you? So, um, again, one of the main things I learned from her and from my wife was uh, their blending process and their fermentation process that uh, yielded wines that, as I said earlier, were approachable young but also aged really well. Um, and also just kind of the professionalism and, um, I'm grasping for the right word, but just the efficiency with which they're able to produce those wines, you know, because. Penarash isn't a huge operation, but it's also not small. It's much larger than Dusky Goose, and they um, they have to be efficient with their time to produce everything on the timeline um, that they do because they're not uh, over-vintaging everything. Mm -hmm. So once things are through mallow, they're tasting and blending and getting it ready for bottle in a relatively short period of time, especially considering their scale. So. Um, just the the process that they go through and I'm going through right now for the first time is uh, been eye-opening for me and a great learning opportunity. Um, I was, you know, early in, after moving up here, I would go on like team building retreats with the Penarash team. We'd go and stay with Lynn and Ron and Bend and I would taste wine with them and their whole winemaking team, and it was a ton of fun, you know, doing competitive sets, seeing the, the qualities in wines that she values, mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, in contrast, the things that turn her off. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, you know, my palate is not her palate, and it's, you know, very different than sort of the things that I would fixate on, but um, 
that's one of the things when you go to work for someone, you gotta kinda train yourself to look at wine the way that they do to maintain consistency of style, that sort of thing. It's a really interesting point. I like, I like, I like the way you explain that. Um, so with Dusky Goose then, obviously you mentioned Lynn's been doing this for a long time. Um, what, what was the difference? Why, what, what, was the, what's, what is unique about Dusky Goose compared to Pinarash? Well, for one thing, it, uh, the sites. Um, we have an estate vineyard uh, named Rambouillet in the Dundee Hills that um, is where our tasting room is. And that was planted in 2001. I'm not sure when the first fruit came off, but you know, I would assume 2004, 2005, something like that. And then they also have a long-term lease on the adjacent vineyard, which is called Lilies. So they do, they're in charge of all the farming there, um, get the majority of the fruit. And um, so Dusky Goose is very rooted in that spot in the Dundee Hills. And thankfully for them, it's a great spot. Um, the fruit is, um, it's very Dundee Hills, but it's also very unique. Um, and yeah, the wines are, you know, Lynn's wines in general are like bigger and more powerful than a lot of uh, Oregon Pinots, which I appreciate. Um, and Dusky Goose is no different. Mm -hmm. um, also, the, the owners of Dusky Goose uh, had a vineyard site in uh, Yamhill Carlton called Fenwood, which they've since sold, but we continue to work with. And so that has been a big part of the Dusky Goose program since, um, gosh, probably 2010. I think it was planted in 2007. Um, and we get a little bit of Pinot from there. Most of that fruit has always been sold to other producers, but that's uh, the Chardonnay program, which started in 14, was always uh, rooted in Fenwood. Uh, we've since sourced a little bit of fruit elsewhere, but just starting with the 21 vintage. So um, the Chardonnay program is like exclusively Fenwood up till now. And uh, it's a great Chardonnay site. I'm actually really excited to be making Chardonnay. I, I haven't done it since I worked at Cake Bread and um, Oregon Chardonnay is really fantastic. So um, I'm obviously excited to be making the Pinot too, but the Chardonnay program is so fresh and new to me that it's a, uh, and I, I just think that Fenwood makes a really exceptional one lucky to be working with it. What excites you about Oregon Chardonnay right now? Um, I think it just, it strikes a great, I mean, I like Chardonnay in general, again, of all styles. Like I can appreciate super fruity, oaky, buttery ones from California and, you know, lean, racy Chablis, Chablis again, as long as they're done well, mm -hmm. I, can, I can appreciate them for what they are. Um, Oregon Chardonnay, I just think, strikes the perfect balance. It's got, um, you can get your fruit ripe, we can do long extended hang times, but um, you're also, you're not gonna lose acidity and minerality. So mm -hmm. you can, and I'm sure this is site specific, but um, the people that are doing it well, I feel like are getting kind of the best of both worlds. You're, you know, you're getting ripe fruit flavors, you know, sometimes tropical flavors, but also citrus and minerality and earthiness, and just layers on layers and layers. Mm -hmm. So how did the opportunity arise for you to come to Dusky Goose and, and what prompted you to do it? So I had, you know, Andrew Rich has been wonderful to me and I enjoyed working for him very much, but there was kind of nowhere for me to go. Um, he's the principal and the winemaker and I honestly, I, I enjoyed my entire, entire time with him. Had, didn't have a lot uh, motivating me to get out of there other than the fact that I, you know, I wanted to have a little bit more say in the winemaking. So um, I told Lynn fairly early on that if there was an opportunity with Dusky Goose that I would be you know, interested to talk to her about it. So long before the opportunity existed, I had told her that I was interested if there were to be an opportunity. Um, and in two, 
you know, uh, Penarash is owned by Jackson family. Part of the deal when Lynn sold the winery was that Dusky Goose would be allowed to continue to produce their wines there as long as Lynn was still involved with Penarash. So um, Jackson family honored that deal, but at the same time, they sort of um, were not making it unclear that they wish Dusky Goose would find a new home because they wanted to grow the brand and you know they could use the space sort of thing. Um, I think that Lynn saw that the writing was on the wall for Dusky Goose and that she needed to find a long-term home mm -hmm. for them. So that was uh, following the 2020 vintage and that's when she approached me about coming on board. And she, you know, said, Hans, do you want to do this? I said, absolutely. And she said, okay, where do you want to do it? And I said, I don't know, let's look around. So we explored custom crush options um, and ultimately arrived at the Carlton Winemaker Studio. It's a, a great facility. There's a really awesome roster of winemakers working there right now. And I had five plus years of experience in the facility, so it was familiar and comfortable to me, and I knew that I would be able to work you know, well there. So ultimately, that's where we landed. Um, and shortly before harvest, we, the owners, John and Linda Carter, bought this facility, which wasn't you know, on our radar at the time. And um, we were under contract at the studio, so we were more than happy to see harvest through over there and give ourselves plenty of time to get situated here before the 22 harvest. Was it weird being at the studio for a different brand? A little bit, um, but mostly comfortable. You know, I, I get along great with everybody there. Um, you know, there was no hard feelings between Andrew and I. Um, he was very supportive. You know, he, honestly, I think that he was surprised I stuck around with him as long as I did. So um, he was happy for me to, uh, him and Lynn are also friends. So, you know, there was no animosity. And yeah, it was great. I mean, I, uh, I know how to navigate that facility well too. So bringing in a new client that already knows the drill is very attractive to the management there. You know, it's like a, uh, we were one of, one of the larger producers there doing, you know, 45 tons, which, you know, is fairly small in the scheme of things, but as far as the studio goes, it's quite large. So to be able to bring in a major player like that and a facility like that that, you know, knows how to operate there was great for all parties. So when Lynn offered you the position here, how did she sort of define the role for you? What, what, what was your role to be and, and how did you sort of see the future kind of laid out ahead of you? Yeah, so when I first came on, um, we explored the option of me working for both Andrew and Lynn. Um, I would be winemaker for Dusky Goose and assistant winemaker for Andrew Rich, um, which is feasible at a place like the studio because you have so much uh, support mm -hmm. from the uh, the studio itself, you know, there's no facility maintenance to worry about. During harvest, you're not uh, having to clean the sorting line at the end of the day. So, um, you know, if, even when that was an option, uh, I was gonna have to take more of a managerial type role with Andrew Rich um, and, you know, bring on more interns, that sort of thing, so that I could, you know, oversee both and not be so hands-on with all the winemaking. Um, ultimately, we decided that that wasn't the best path, that I would just focus on Dusky Goose and, you know, we would go our separate ways. Um, but yeah, it was winemaker in perpetuity. Uh, Lynn is founding winemaker for Dusky Goose and still very much involved. Um, she's, you know, got so much institutional knowledge, not just of Dusky Goose, but of the valley in general. Mm -hmm. um, knows all the growers, um, 
anytime fruit comes available from a vineyard, you know, it's someplace that she's either currently working with for Dusky Goose or uh, for Penner Ash, or she worked with it at one point or another for some other brand that she was working on. So it's just, you know, invaluable level of insight into the valley. Um, and then as, so she, you know, and then of course has insight into the Dusky Goose's estate vineyards so she can help with picking decisions and, you know, fermentation practices and blending and all that sort of thing. So in both those instances with, with Andrew and with, and with Lynn, you have someone like, you said, kind of a deep institutional knowledge and, and you're bringing your skill set and your opinions to the table. So how do you find that balance between sort of pushing yourself forward while also kind of working with someone else who has this history and, and history of, of the same work? Well, so with Andrew, ultimately, you know, it was, it was his show to run. So I was just trying to absorb as much as I could, but I didn't really, I mean, he certainly valued my opinion. And, you know, when we would blend, we would debate the merits of the wines a lot. But ultimately, it was his palate that made the, you know, the determining factor. Um, with Dusky Goose, I have a lot more authority to make, you know, different decisions, um, especially, you know, the wine is made during harvest for the most part, and I'm making all the day-to-day -day decisions on what a fermenter needs and ultimately, you know, how that wine is going to be shaped before it goes to barrel. Um, Lynn is coming in and tasting and giving her two cents, you know, frequently, which is very helpful too, because she can help me troubleshoot things before they get to be too big of problems or that, you know, hopefully avoid a problem in the first place. Um, but then in the blending table, you know, it's, uh, it's so different blending with her than it was with Andrew. And I, I got glimpses into it while, you know, sitting with her and my wife blending Penner Ash wines and Dusky Goose wines for that matter in years past. Um, and I just having to like reframe the way I look at um, the blending process, mm -hmm. which is great because I know that ultimately um, what she produces is delicious and it's just a different way of getting there. Mm -hmm. And um, Dusky Goose, we have a sister label named Rambo which is R-A-M-B-E-A-U-X. That is uh, the nickname that was given to the Rambouillet uh, vineyard. And uh, Rambouillet is a breed of sheep. So the, the Rambo label has a, a sheep skull on the label. Um, and that's a young brand that I will get to put my uh, imprint on much more so than Dusky Goose. You know, the Dusky Goose is, it's 20 years old. Um, it has a style, it has fans, you know, I'm not looking to change that. Um, but Rambo can kind of be what I want it to be, which is exciting. Mm -hmm. So with that, what are you thinking about? What would you like to do with Rambo? It's a good question. We're still figuring it out. Um, we have a rosé of Pinot Noir, a Chardonnay, and uh, a Pinot. And those are pretty well established, but they're Willamette Valley um, appellated, so they, uh, the fruit sourcing has the potential to be much broader than you know, what we did with Dusky Goose, um, which also makes it a much more scalable thing. So it could become bigger um, once this facility is built out and the tasting room is operational. We will, um, you know, start building our club around the Rambo brand, which will enable me to do kind of one-off bottlings. Um, whether that's, you know, changing every year, or we identify like ABA bottlings that we want to do, or. Um, proprietary blends, we're still f kind of figuring it out. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's, it's awesome for me because the, the management has sort of said, Hans, what do you want to do? You know, what, what's going to get you excited and get you out of bed and, um, you know, coming into work fired up every day. So I, 
I guess I got to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> it's an exciting question to be asked. We don't yeah. all get that opportunity very often. Definitely. That's awesome. Any thoughts on expanding beyond the kind of the Burgundian Pinot Chardonnay? Are you, I mean, are you thinking about working with some sort of different varietals? Uh, it's certainly on the table. Um, I know that you know Gamay is super popular right now. I Andrew Rich made Sauvignon Blanc, which was I would one of my favorite wines to make with him. I would be happy to make that again. Um, but right now, you know, we're we're focusing on you know the Willamette Valley's bread and butter, Pinot and Chard. Uh, but you never know. You never know. I don't. Um, the the owner of Dusky Goose is definitely he likes the uh, the noble grape varieties. So, you know, he's a big cab guy, burgundy guy. So, I think that if we were, I don't think that we're ever going to dabble in Bordeaux um, unless somehow we were miraculously able to get fruit from Napa from some fantastic site, but I just don't see it happening. It doesn't seem likely. But yeah, there's so much, so many fun varieties getting experimented with around here right now that um, we'll see. I think anything's possible. So you've obviously worked, all, you've worked in a number of different places, a, diff a bunch of different kind of winery setups and winery, you know, logistics. So tell me about this space now, getting to know it and kind of looking ahead to harvest. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think about it so far and kind of what are you, what's in your mind as you're kind of become, becoming your home base? I'm super excited. Um, I, I loved my time at the Carlton Maker Studio, but there's certainly challenges associated with sharing a space and sharing equipment and that sort of thing. So to be able to do everything on my own timeline is very attractive. Um, we um, have been purchasing equipment uh, all this year, so getting new tanks, um, getting all the receivable equipment mm -hmm. serviced and ready to go for harvest so that there's no hiccups. Um, and you know, we're, we're relatively small, so while this building is only 5,000 square feet, it um, fits our needs great for now. Mm -hmm. um, that said, we may outgrow it and may outgrow it relatively soon, but fortunately the property is large enough that um, we are looking into the possibility of expanding in the in the future, um, and just kind of making our short-term decisions with that in mind. You know, the the possibility of that down the road. But yeah, I, I've worked in a lot of fancy wineries. You know, gravity-fed, stillage, rammed earth structures, all you name it, um, but when it comes to functionality in a winery, a big or open floor plan and no stairs is kind of ideal in my opinion. Just a big open space. Yeah, there's never, there's never too much storage, you know, you can't have, you can't have too much space. So. <laughs> and flexibility is key. So I want to talk about uh, 2020 for a second, if I could. Uh, curious about sort of the impacts on you and your, your life and your work, uh, both the, the pandemic part of things and of course the harvest of 2020 kind of things. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that year for you and sort of uh, adjustments made, lessons learned and kind of how you came out the other side. Sure, yeah, so 2020 was a very eventful year for the reasons you mentioned and also uh, my first child was born in January of 2020. So, you know, it actually, because my son was born, all the uh, negative things that happened, it was sort of the best case scenario as far as we were concerned. Um, we were not going to be traveling with an infant anyway, so the fact that we couldn't go anywhere wasn't a big deal. Um, both my wife and I made significantly less wine in 2020 than we would have had the vintage been a normal year. Um, so that uh, created less demand for us to be away from home. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were also trying to do as much work from home anyway, just to limit our exposures. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it, I mean, selfishly, 
it really wasn't that bad for us. We got to spend a lot of time with our son, which was awesome. Mm -hmm. And um, while we didn't make much wine, the wine that we did make turned out really nice. So pretty, you know, something that we can stand behind and be proud of. With that part of things, the, the, the harvest, obviously, the, the smoke that was out here, um, how did you kind of, tell me kind of in real time how it p played out for you and what were you thinking kind of at the time? Were you thinking like, oh no, we won't make any wine or what, what, what was kind of your, 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 your first impression, your first thought uh, through that, those was kind of the first weeks of September? Yeah, so it was a whole mix of emotions. Um, fortunately, I was an employee of a company and working with the principal and the winemaker, so he had to make the big decisions as far as you know what was worth making. Um, and I really just had to you know make make the most of it. Um, I, in 2008, there were pretty bad fires in California, so I had a little bit of experience with smoke taint. Those fires were in uh, the Anderson Valley, mm -hmm. primarily, so we were, it was with Pinot Noir that we were treating it at Cake Bread, and it was pretty um, unheard of at the time in California, so didn't really know what to do. Ironically, um, no one knows what to do still. Um, so even though I had a little bit of experience, it was a matter of, you know, I, yeah, what are we gonna do with this? How big of a risk do we wanna take? Are we gonna take all of our fruit and, you know, see what we can do? Ultimately, um, we did micro-ferments from all of our sites and got lab analysis and compared the lab analysis with our blind tasting notes to decide which sites we thought were worth the gamble mm -hmm. to continue to work with. And um, our, the lab analysis and our palettes were pretty consistent in terms of the sites with, um, that were more smoke affected. We didn't like the wines very much and you know the ones that had lower smoke effect numbers, we, we preferred the wine, mm -hmm. so we continued to move forward with those wines. Um, it's really a shame, I think it, you know, the wines turned out good, not great, but I think it could have been a great year. Um, so in that respect, it's sad. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it, and then there's the whole aspect of what it does for the industry at large in the Valley, which was hard to reconcile because you know, everybody's situation is different and you can't tell someone how to run their business and say, no, you really shouldn't be putting that into a bottle because it's gonna tarnish our reputation, which, you know, the Willamette Valley has worked so hard to build this reputation for really high quality mm -hmm. Pinot and Chardonnay. So I, you know, I understand people that felt as though some producers were not behaving responsibly, but, um, you know, they also, they need to make wine to keep the business afloat, so mm -hmm. I, I get it. Um, but it was, a, it was a tricky situation for everybody. So kind of along those lines, tell me about the changes you've seen in Oregon wine since becoming part of it, or becoming, at least becoming aware of it. Um, what are the biggest changes you've noticed, uh, and what does the industry look like to you right now in 2022? So, Prior to me being up here, um, but I, you know, I've still tasted the wines from that era. I think there was a lot of folks up here who weren't embracing the Oregon um, um, climate so much. You know, they they liked the wines that they were producing, but. Wines from California were getting more critical acclaim. So in the odd year where Oregon got a really warm vintage, they were like, yes, let's, let's push the envelope in terms of ripeness as much as possible. And I think, you know, after eight, nine, 12, 14, 15, 16, all those warm years, uh, the industry has learned that, you know, 
it, an individual producer can make whatever wine they want, but um, as a whole, Oregon is best suited to make wine of a, of a certain style, and that's not the same as the Russian River. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and thankfully I think that, you know, critics have left an influence, but also critics recognize that exact thing as well, you know, and they want Oregon to make Oregon wine, not uh, California wine. Um, additionally, uh, there's just been a lot more um, larger companies, you know, moving into the valley, which some people dislike, um, I think, as a whole, as long as those companies behave well and are good stewards and represent the valley well, I think it's a good thing. I think it raises the profile of the valley and um, brings in a level of professionalism that wasn't always here. You know, I think as the industry has grown and attracted talent from, you know, outside of Oregon, from other wine regions, um, the professionalism has grown, but also just, you know, people that work for big companies, whether it's Jackson Family or Constellation or some big French house, they get uh, trained really well within their company and then they bring those skills to everyone that they come in contact with. And I think it's, it raises the quality of, um, not just the wine, but the hospitality experience and the business, you know, acumen. So what comes next for Oregon? I think probably more of the same. I think that, um, you know, there's a huge focus on quality here, right? So lots of small producers making the best quality wine they can. Mm -hmm. I think that probably with, you know, some bigger outfits moving in, um, that might change a little bit. I think that they try to get the price point down a little bit and sacrifice a little bit of quality, but continue to maintain quality and um, blow up production. Uh, there's, you know, there's big producers that, you know, do a good job already. Um, but not many of them, not many of those big players. And I think that there's gonna be more of that. Mm -hmm. um, and it'll, just, it'll be interesting to see, you know, if there's, you know, more inv outside investment. I, I have to imagine that there will be. Um, there's just so much opportunity here. A lot of land left to be developed, like a whole lot of land that is still prime vineyard land left undeveloped. And um, also in terms of, you know, the hospitality side of things, I think that that Oregon has a probably a longer way to go as far as that's concerned than the winemaking. I think that the winemaking is fantastic and that came first and that is, um, you know, driving all this investment. But I think that the hospitality side of things is catching up. Mm -hmm. And um, it'll be interesting to see it, how sustainable those things are. You know, I live in McMinnville, and McMinnville is a, a great town. I love living there. It's got a w variety of people. You know, there's wine industry, but there's also a lot of other farming industry there. And I think that the majority of the population isn't looking for fine dining. You know, they want burgers and pizza and beer and just normal comfort food. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if when fine dining places and hotels and spas and that stuff start popping up, if uh, they'll be sustainable without the support of locals, you know? I think that there's certainly some locals that all frequent those places, mm -hmm. but for the most part, not so much. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It'll be, interesting. it'll be interesting to see. For sure. <laughs> it's gonna happen eventually, it's just a matter of time, but I, I wonder how much time. Mm -hmm. What do you see for yourself as you look ahead for your future in the Oregon wine industry? Well, I, I don't foresee myself, you know, leaving Dusky Goose or Rambo anytime soon. So my future in the wine industry is, you know, very much tied to that. <laughs> and with the, uh, uh, the addition of this space and the potential for growing Rambo and, um, 
getting more attention to Dusky Goose in general. Uh, I'm, I'm just excited for all of it. We're, we're going through a major period of change as a company, and I'm, you know, it's funny that 20 years in, um, all these things are starting to happen kind of all at once. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm happy to be a part of it and to hopefully steer it in a direction that is successful, not just for myself, but you know, for the company. Mm -hmm. And so uh, if someone were to ask you for the, your advice or your words of wisdom on joining the Oregon wine industry uh, in some way, what would you tell them? That's a good question. Um, I guess it depends on the person. I, I sort of got uh, to where I am through more of an apprenticeship model, um, but I do think that there's a lot of value in you know getting a degree in enology and viticulture if you know that's ultimately where you want to end up. And then one thing that I regret is having not done more uh, traveling and seen more vintages abroad. Um, I definitely see the value in it. I think that it makes you a more well-rounded winemaker. I think it also helps to go into those sorts of things, not like fresh out of school, you know, with a little bit of experience under your belt so you can better absorb what is happening around you. Um, I think it's hard to, you know, have the, the book knowledge and then get into a winery environment with not a lot of experience and you know really understand everything that you're seeing mm -hmm. so you know I, I guess uh, the best case scenario would be get your degree put in a year or two in a cellar so that you understand everything that's happening and then um, bounce around and also this is a tough thing to do because it requires money but just uh, drinking wine all the time tasting 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 it's a hard thing to do when you're broke and fresh out of school but it's uh, the only way you're gonna you know learn to be a, a good taster mm -hmm. is by tasting mm -hmm. all right so the questions that i have for you uh, anything i didn't ask that i should have anything we didn't cover here today that you'd like to cover i don't think so fantastic well thank you so much for your time for your stories and your answers here and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook all right thanks thank much. you Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.